We're going to start back in Revelation 22.1 to set the context. And he showed me a river, Revelation 22.1, of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservant shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. And there shall no long, they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign, can you say it, God's people, forever and ever. And he said to me, and this is the second time that we're going to see this after an incredible promise about seeing the face of God, Eden being restored, all that man was supposed to be in fellowship with God, uh, all of the hope that we have placed in the person of Christ in the Holy Scriptures. There's a verification of their, you could say their veracity or their truthfulness. He said to me, these words, what you just read, are faithful and they are true. They are just like God. He is faithful and true. And these words that you just read are faithful and true because all scripture is inspired by God, right? And it is profitable. These words that you just read about, the new Jerusalem, the fact that you will see God's face if you've trusted in Christ, that there will no longer be any curse, no longer be any sin, no longer be any pain, no longer be any sorrow, no longer be any death, that you will see loved ones that have gone on before you in Christ. These words, they are faithful and they are true because it is impossible for God to lie. This is a prophecy to encourage God's people. And these words, and they, of course, in the immediate context, what we just read about the tree of life and seeing God's face, but really the whole book, these words are faithful and true. The whole Bible and the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets or of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, when we started the book, I told you about a debate that is prevalent among uh, you could call scholars of the book of Revelation, there are some that believe in a preterist view. So whenever you see words like shortly or I'm coming quickly, they say that much of the book of Revelation could be applied to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But the word here uh, for shortly, if you take a peek at verse 6, is two Greek words. It's entakas, and it means in haste. Uh, again, the word quickly is a form of that word. It's taku, T-A-C-H-U. And it means in haste, speedily, or swiftly. I mentioned to you that this is the where, where we get the word tachometer. And it speaks of speed or swiftness. Now, there are some who make the case that this means that from the time that Revelation was written, and their argument is that it had to be written before A.D. 70, after all, if it was about the fall of Jerusalem and it's a prophecy, it would have to be written before the fall. So they must date the book around 68 AD, AD or earlier. 
but the consensus of scholarship and what I believe is around 9095, and that would make it about the end times or the second coming of Jesus Christ. And here's how this goes with the idea of the tachometer and this Greek word. It means that when these events begin to unfold, they will happen with swiftness or some would say rapidity, rapidness. That is, when we enter into Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years, recorded in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and we are seeing Jesus break the seals and the end times events begin to unfold, they will unfold with swiftness. That's the idea of this language. And so Jesus says, I am coming swiftly, you could say, speedily. I believe believers will be prepared for this time, but unbelievers will not be prepared for this time and they will be believing the lie. So John has just described the majesty of we, as we've talked about of the New Jerusalem in verses one through five, its beauty, its majesty, its splendor. It's all centered around God and the beauty of his glory and the colors and the jewels. We all, hopefully you got a chance to be with us as we read about that, seeing his face. And now we are told about the swiftness of these events. When they unfold, they will unfold swiftly. This is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to just take you quickly to some verses that affirm that Jesus will come a second time. Just turn in your Bibles for a second to the book of John, John 14. I want to give you just a few go-to passages. Uh, Many of these you'll be familiar with, but I think it's good just to remind ourselves. Jesus in the upper room, the night before he died, he was uh, talking to the disciples about not being troubled and trusting in God and in him. He said, in my Father's house, John 14, 2, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If there wasn't a heaven, I would have told you, said Jesus. But there is. And I go and prepare a place for you, John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again, second coming, and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, if you uh, flip ahead to the book of Acts, just a few pages to your right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, you'll get get to chapter one of the book of Acts. Just take a peek as Jesus is ascending into heaven. Here's what happens. Verse nine talks about the fact that he was lifted up in their sight, Acts 1, 9. A glory cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing, Acts 1, 10, intently into the sky while he was departing, Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. He will come again. There's your second coming. Jesus is coming again. The book of Acts teaches that. If you go to your right and turn over to the book of First. Uh, Corinthians, just pass up Romans, keep going to the right. You'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As Paul addresses the Corinthian congregation, chapter 1, verse 7, he shares these words with them. He says, 1 7, so that you are not, not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he is waiting until the time is right. He's there in resurrection, glory, and power right now at the place of majesty at the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting to come back. 
1 Corinthians 4 is the next uh, section I want you to look at, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul's talking about stewardship and fidelity to the gospel. And he says, therefore, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Wait until the Lord comes, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Go all the way to 1 Corinthians 15. As the Apostle Paul is teaching on the resurrection, he's going to mention the second coming. He does mention it a couple of different times in 1 Corinthians 15. But here's what he says about the second coming. He says, for 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, 1523. But each in his order, Christ, the first fruits, he's talking about the resurrection. After that, those who are Christ's, what? At his coming. Then comes the end, says Paul. And then he talks about in 15, or excuse me, 25. He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And we've been reading about that in the book of Revelation. Go on to 1622. 1 Corinthians 1622 says, as Paul closes 1 Corinthians, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed or anathema. And then he uses the word maranatha. You may have heard of maranatha music way back in the day. Uh, maranatha is a word that means, O Lord, come. Or we, we could just say it this way, come Lord, or come Lord Jesus. I believe the origin of the word is Aramaic. And Paul, closing 1 Corinthians, says Maranatha, or come Lord Jesus. A couple more. Keep going to your right. You're going to get to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, several pages to the right. Chapter 4. We've looked at the uh, famous rapture passage in past studies just to cut to the chase, in verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, 4.15, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, just like we read about in Acts 1, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, 4.16, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Praise God. Amen. A little bit more to your right is the book of Titus. Titus is a very practical book, but it also includes the second coming teaching, Titus 2. And we'll just uh, read verses 11 through 13. It says, For the grace of God, Titus 2.11, has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, Titus 2.13, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, 
zealous for good deeds. And then one more, Hebrews 9, a little bit more to the right. Hebrews 9, we're going to look at verse 28. I think it's important to remind yourself of Hebrews 9.27. It's a critical verse. Dispels a lot of false teaching, including reincarnation, which is not true. But it does teach life after death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? Comes the judgment. Now, it depends on where you stand, whether or not that's good news or not. So Christ also, Hebrews 9.28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation or rescue without reference to sin to those who what? Who eagerly await him. Now that's just a small sampling of the teaching of the second coming in the book, uh, in the different books of the Bible. And we're talking about the second coming in Revelation. So we're gonna turn back to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. So John has assured us of the truthfulness of the words inspired by the Spirit. We have the words, I am coming quickly, uh, in verse 7, a reference to the second coming. We talked about how it will happen swiftly or speedily. At least the events will happen quickly as compared to uh, man's history. And then it it gives a blessing. In 22.7 of Revelation, it says, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. The only way you can heed the words is if you read the words. Amen? And the only way you can learn the words is if pastors are willing to teach the book of Revelation. And since the book of Revelation has a blessing attached to it, I would encourage you to spend a good amount of your time over the next decades as you walk with the Lord. Make sure that Revelation is part of your reading. Make sure that it's part of your devotional reading. Make sure that you study the book. Blessed is he, earlier in chapter one, who hears, heeds, reads, and heeds. And here, kind of a condensed version of that is uh, the same type of blessing. Blessed is the one who heeds. James says, don't just be a hearer, be what? A doer. If you heed something, it means you pay attention to it. You do it. You listen and you obey. Now, John says, I, John, verse 8, chapter 22, Revelation, am the one who heard and saw these things. John's been uh, telling us all along, just uh, by way of refreshment, in 1-1, he identified himself, Revelation 1-1, 1-4, and 1-9. He says, I, John, am the one. I heard, I saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And all God's people said, oh, John, not again. (laughs) Now, I've read some commentaries that say John was worshiping God, just happened to be at the feet of the angel. (laughs) Well, that gives John the benefit of the doubt. And I love to give benefits of doubt, but I'm not sure that that's what is going on here because the angel says in the next verse, do not do that. (laughs) And this is the second time he's had to say that. John was a man, and he, I think he was overwhelmed by what he had received. He sensed that it was kind of coming to a conclusion, and so he was human. And so there he is. Uh, you know, you could argue he was worshiping God at the angel's feet, or as one writer put it, the response was correct, worship, but the object was wrong. The response, worship, is a good thing, 
but what you worship makes all the difference. And there are people who are worshiping idols, worshiping self, worshiping the sun, moon, and the stars, you name it, movie stars, rock stars, athletes. But who you worship ends up defining you. Everybody with me? The, and by the way, the object of worship makes all the difference, and God does care about what you worship. And this angel knows that. So he says, don't do that. There was another angel around these parts that tried to do that, and he got booted. And he ain't coming back. And so he says, don't do that, verse 9. I am a fellow servant. Angels are fellow servants of yours. Hebrews 1.14 calls them ministering spirits and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who, what? Heed the words of this book. And then he says, worship God. When the devil was tempting Jesus, that's what Jesus said. It's God alone you shall worship. Satan wanted worship. Just bow down and I'll give you these things. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. You worship God alone and you serve him only. And so he said to me, do not, verse 10, seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let it be understood. Don't seal it up. It needs to be known. Now, in the book of Daniel, if you'll flip back to Daniel um, in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel is kind of the Old Testament book of Revelation, if you will, filled with a bunch of prophecy. Daniel is writing about the end days, Daniel 12, and he says these words. He's talking about the uh, second coming, the resurrection, the rapture, and so forth. And here's what he says, Daniel 12, 3. He says, those who have insight will shine brightly, 12, 3, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead many to righteousness, those who influence others to the faith, if you will, like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, Daniel 12, 4, conceal these, close up, shut up these words, and seal up the book until when? Until the end of time or the time of the end. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, Daniel, in contrast to John, is told to seal up the book until the end of time. And then an interesting Bible verse. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And some scholars of past decades believe that this had to do with the increase in travel automobiles and trains and planes and rockets and people will go to and fro and you watch people on the freeway and if it, you know you ever watch something where they speed up the traffic people are going they go back and forth up and down back and forth up and down back. maybe that's how you feel right now that's my life back and forth back and forth forth and back well that's probably not the interpretation here Going back and forth, many believe, has to do with going back and forth over texts of prophecy and knowledge increasing in regard to the prophetic. That is a major view, by the way, of orthodox scholars, that that's the proper understanding of Daniel 12.4. Daniel's told, don't worry about it. Go your way, Daniel, because this is not going to happen in your lifetime. Uh, Look at verse 13 of Daniel 12, the last verse. But as for you, go your way to the end 
Uh, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at what? At the end of the age. Seal it up because it doesn't have to do with your lifetime. It has to do with the time of the end. And Daniel would die and not see these things. And he wondered about the future of the nation of Israel as they had gone into Babylonian captivity. And he was shown prophecies about the end days and about stuff in, in the immediate future of Daniel's own time frame. And he was told, don't worry about it. Go your way. This isn't for your time. Train up a child in the way that he or she should go. And when they're old, they will not what? Depart from it. Do you know which way you should go? Do you know the way in which you should go? Look, only one generation is going to see the second coming and we may not be it, but we may be. I don't know. But do you know which way you should be going now? If Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime, do you know what you're about? Do you know what you should be doing right now? That's what Daniel was told. Daniel, this is not going to happen in your lifetime. Now, John is told something opposite, though. He's told to go ahead and make sure that this is known because it's important that God's people understand this. And so let's go back to the book of Revelation. It is up to Bible students, pastors, to study this book, to understand the words of this prophecy, to live in the light of the second coming, not to be fanatic about it, not to be sensationalistic about it, but to be prepared and equipped. It could happen in our lifetime, but it may not. And if it doesn't, the most important thing you can do is live for the kingdom of God and live the way you're living now, whether he comes in your lifetime or not. Don't seal it up. This book needs to be known and it will give encouragement and it will bless for the time is near. And then he says something that's a bit shocking. This is 2211 of Revelation. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. That means don't take a bath, by the way. And I'm just kidding. That's not what it means. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now, there are some that believe that this is saying that the generation that sees the return of Jesus Christ, once he comes, positions will be fixed, i.e., that is, that if Jesus comes, let's say there's a, a group of people on the planet, and here he comes. Some believe that once he comes, the day of the Lord starts, and so there's a rapture, there's a resurrection, God's people are taken to safety, and then the wrath of God comes, and everybody who's left is fixed in their position because they won't repent because the day of the Lord's come and nobody's repenting. In fact, when we looked at some of the day of the Lord passages, what do people do when they get the boils and the rocks and all of that? What do they do? Shake their fist at God, and they will not repent of their witchcraft and idolatry and immorality, dot, dot, dot. Everybody remember that? So one view is just saying, you are who you are, and if at this time you haven't changed, then it's too late. Positions are fixed. It's over. The Bible says, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And there are a lot of people who like to walk the razor's edge when it comes to getting right with God. I'll put it off. I'm going to sow my wild oats. I'm going to live it up for a while. Then, when I'm really old, 
Let me ask you a question. If, and, and God is so gracious, he even saved the thief on the cross, right? God is so gracious, he saved people in hospital beds in their dying moments. But is that how you want to serve your king? Is that what you want to do? Let me just skate in by the hairs of my chinny chin chin. <laughs> Saved. Right? Saved as by fire. Yeah, my clothes are smoking, but I'm in, baby. Give me a broom. <laughs> hey, that's the attitude of some people. And if that's you, I guess have at it. But that's not how I want to get in. I don't want some angel having to put out a fire on me as I'm trying to skate through the elevator doors, if you know what I'm saying. I'd like to make a grand entrance into the kingdom of God. Not that it's about me, but that it's about I serve my king well. And he says, well done. Good job. Now enter in. Don't you want to please him? You know, we sing about him dying for us and we want to give him everything. And then take a look at your portfolio or your calendar and you'll probably have a pretty good idea of what you're given. And so that's one view. There are others who believe that in these imperatives, not indicatives, it's kind of saying something like this. If you're reading this right now and you're in the filthy category, you might want to take a hard look because there's going to be a time that comes when your position may be fixed, especially if you're this generation and it's going to be too late. So there's an urgency about being saved. Behold, I am coming, verse 12, quickly. Some people say, give me that Bible track. Tell me about that mark of the beast and that antichrist again, that if they're from the South, that antichrist again. Tell me about him. Because when I, when I see him, you gave me that Bible track I won't, I'll refuse the mark, bro. I'll, I'll be good. I'll leave that Bible track right on my desk. I had a coworker years ago. I told him about the end times. I gave him a gospel track. He left that gospel tract on his desk. And I knew he wasn't a believer. And I would walk by his desk and he would say, Pastor Michael, tell me one more time. If that antichrist guy comes and this half is what, what I, don't take the mark, right? I said, why don't you just come to Christ now? And that little gospel track was on his desk, almost like a little security blanket. You know? I mean, on one hand, at least he was thinking about it, but Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Jesus told the story of the talents and the minas in Luke 19. He told the story... He said, there were people listening to him. He told a parable. He was going to Jerusalem. They supposed the kingdom of God was coming, going to appear immediately. He said, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return or come back. He called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this, put this to work, King James, occupy until I come. Make an investment. Do something with what I gave you, and when I come back, we'll settle up. You guys know the story of the talents, right? Two of them did well with it, but one hid it away because of what? Fear. I was afraid. I was afraid. 
Here, let me put a little bit more dirt on this. I'll protect that. You didn't do anything with it? No, I was afraid. Fear. Really? No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon, it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. What that tells me is that we're saved by grace, not by works, not by works, not by works, but I do want to have a crown to lay at his feet. Amen? Amen. And so I think this, this is the issue. I am the Alpha and the Omega, verse 13, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So we've all looked at Alpha and Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We've talked about the Aleph Tav, first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we saw this in chapter one, and here's a good way to think about it. It says the beginning and the end. So God is the beginner and the ender. He is the creator and the consummator. And by the way, these titles are applied to Jesus Christ. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. Thus, he must be God. And we've gone through that in chapter one. Jesus is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginner and the ender, if you will. And uh, he is God. Blessed, verse 14, are those who wash their robes. There's a variant reading here, just need to be aware of. If you have a King James, New King James, it says, do his commandments. You say variant reading. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? A variant reading is a difference in two manuscript streams. Let me explain quickly. There are some major manuscript uh, streams that come from different areas of the world, Alexandria, Egypt, and so forth. And with the manuscripts, sometimes there's what's called a variant reading. That is, one version says this, Another version says this. It doesn't touch any essential doctrines of the Bible. But this is a case where the manuscript family from the King James, New King James says, blessed are those who do his commandments. And the others say, who wash their robes. Now, is it true that there's a blessing for both? Yeah. If you, if you have had your robes washed, and we'll talk about that in a second, you're going to be blessed. It's by the blood of the lamb, by the way. And if you do God's commandments, are you going to be a blessed person? Yes. But the concern is that it doesn't imply works here. We're saved by grace, so I'll let you wrestle with that, but that's the variant reading. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, if the first reading is correct, who washed their robes, the only ones getting into the city and having access to the tree of life are those who have been washed. Have you been washed? We have a gentleman in our congregation who does printing for car washes. And he wanted to do something for the church. And what he does is he, he has a little business advertisement on the front of the little card. It's that check card that you hold 
when your car is being washed, then you turn it back in with a couple bucks for the guy who dried your car, right? So he said, hey, I want to do one for the church. Do you have an idea? And I said, yes, I do. Here's my idea. On the front of the car, card put, have you been washed, question mark. And then, you know, we'll, we'll put some Bible verses on there. Things were good for a while until an atheist showed up in one of the car washes. Have I been washed? Now, we wanted to put him in the car wash, but apparently the, that wasn't going to work out. So, But you know how it goes. So they had to remove the card, Pastor Michael's grand idea. But hopefully it got some people's attention while they were waiting for their automobile. Right? Have you been washed? You get your car washed. What do you mean, have I been washed? I don't need it. I took a shower. <laughs> we're not talking about that. We're not talking about your cologne or your hair. We're talking about, have you been washed from your sin? Oh, that ruffles people's feathers, especially when they just had a half a cup of coffee and just went to get a car wash. These Christians are everywhere. Even when I get my car washed. And there you go. Anyway, have you been washed? Secondly, are you a citizen of the kingdom? Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who, who, who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject even all things to himself, Philippians 3.21. He's going to call you by name. And we're going to rise. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6.11, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I need a power washing. I don't know about you, Man, there's been a lot of blemishes along the road of this life in thought, word, and deed, and even things I failed to do that I knew I should have done. I need a power wash. You ever use one of those power washers? They're pretty cool. You have stuck, stuff stuck on the pavement or... If you use one on your house, it'll chip away your paint. I've done it. <laughs> We have a blessed hope. We've been washed in the mercy, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you flip, down, flip back to Revelation 7, here's a little bit more about that robe washing. The robe represents our uncleanness, we're all born with a filthy robe. Can I get a witness? Anybody got a little kid or a grandchild? Okay, here you go. They get in the high chair. You don't have to teach this. They will throw food at you. <laughs> and then have you ever given them the first bite of ice cream before in the high chair and just to watch the reaction? Ooh, the first taste of, yeah, applesauce isn't so grand, but ice cream or the cake when they had that first birthday and they start mushing the cake and they're, 
<laughs> anyway, Revelation 7.13 says, One of the elders, 7.13, answered and said to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? From where have they come? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you washed? Are you justified? The book of Revelation is to reveal the end times, certainly, but to reveal the person and work of Christ. And if you're going to be in this city, you've got to be washed. You've got to be a citizen. Then you'll be in, back to Revelation 22, you'll be able to enter the city and you'll be able to have access to the tree of life. You'll get in the gates. You'll get to the tree. But on the outside, 15, are the dogs. Now, I know that some of you saw the movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. This verse blows up that movie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you are like, I love dogs. Pastor Michael, you said cats were not Christians. I still believe that. My theology is holding true. You indicated, at least implied, that dogs would be there. I really don't know, and I don't think I've ever said. It's kind of a hope I have, because I am a dog lover. But then I read this verse. Outside are the dogs. But <laughs> you all know I'm kind of joking, right? Because the dogs is just another way to describe people who are filthy. Unwashed robes. The dogs were, in the ancient world, there were some domesticated dogs, as I understand it, but a lot of the dogs roamed in packs and they were scavengers and filthy and they ate garbage and all of that stuff. Almost like uh, a modern-day coyote pack. That's how you would picture it. Outside are the coyotes, if you will. Uh, outside are the dogs. The, the, these represent people. Um, some of the versions say, outside are the barking dogs. They all should be outside the gates. Don't you agree? I'm just kidding. Some versions don't say that. That was a joke. Anyway. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> now you can see, these are not dogs practicing sorcery. It's actually people. <laughs> Get all the Disney movies out of your mind. They're sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying are on the outside looking in. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man had all of this incredible stuff and he fared sumptuously every day and he was dressed in purple and fine linen. And he had a poor man at his gate named Lazarus. Jesus tells the story in Luke 16. And Lazarus had all these sores and who came and licked his sores? It was the dogs, right? The dogs paid attention to him, had a little mercy on him, but he, he just wanted the scraps off the rich man's table and apparently he got nothing. Well, both men die. One man is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, kind of a paradise place. And he's there with Abraham, the believer. The other man dies, gets buried, but his soul or spirit ends up where? In Hades. 
And he's able to look and see who? Abraham and Lazarus off in the distance. And he says, Father Abraham, appears to be Jewish. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Let him put some water on his finger. Put it on my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. And as the dialogue goes back and forth, there's a great chasm fixed. They can't cross over. He can't cross over. He, he asks for a warning for his family. His position is fixed. Interestingly enough, though, he can see what's going on in paradise. Now, I understand the theology and Hades and all of that, and we've, we've tackled that before, but, but I just find it intriguing that there is this wealthy man during his life ignored what he should have been doing, didn't believe, and he's on the outside looking in, and there's nothing he can do about it. That intensifies the tragedy even more. I, Jesus, and I'm not making a statement, by the way, that I think unbelievers can see heaven or the, the city. I don't know that. I don't know that. I'm just saying it's an interesting thought. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. You can write down Isaiah 11.1 1, where he's the shoot uh, out of the stem uh, of Jesse. And then, um, or I believe that's what it says. Isaiah 11.1, 1, check that. And then, he says, I'm the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. He comes from David's body. He's human from the line of David. The bright and morning star is another way of saying the Messiah. Write down Numbers 24, verse 17. One writer says, in extra biblical Jewish writings, the coming of the Messiah, he was called a star. John MacArthur comments, as the morning star heralds the arrival of the day, so Jesus' coming will herald the end of the darkness of man's night and the glorious dawn of his kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I sent my angel. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and so forth. And here's our title for tonight. And the spirit and the bride say, come. I think there's an invitation here to unbelievers. Come, come and be washed. Come and experience life in Christ. And the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The spirit and the bride say come is probably an invitation or a, a cry for Jesus to come. And then the rest of the verses here or the, the invitation has to do with a sinner repenting. Notice there's an order here. He who hears, he who is thirsty, he who wishes can take the water of life with what? Without cost. It's free. Because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. God is not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. King Agrippa says, Paul, I wish everyone was like me, a Christian, yet without these chains. Acts 27.29. And so he says, I testify to everyone who hears these words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words, the words is la, it's a form of logos here, of the, of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. 
Can I just say, I don't think it takes much to comment, don't add to the Bible. In the last 200 years, we have had a proliferation of cults and movements that have been doomsday, apocalyptic, sensational groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, forms and some segments of Seventh-day Adventism, picking dates, coming up with formulas. And is that adding to the book of Revelation? I'll let you decide that. But there have been other cults that have added extra books to the Bible. The Bible alone is not sufficient. You need these other books that explain that book. Or we, these other books are our priority and then the Bible. Uh-uh. Don't do it. Because if you do it, your way may be blocked to the city. And you may be howling from outside the city gates. Everybody with me? You don't play games with God's word. This does not mean, by the way, that you can't uh, teach the book of Revelation. It doesn't mean that you can't exposit it, expose the meaning. What it means is don't add to it and don't take away from it. Don't try to soften it. Don't take away particular verses. There are people... so-called New Testament scholars that have eliminated much of Jesus' statements of the New Testament. They get in a room, I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but back in the day they were called the Jesus Seminar, and they voted with different color beads. Did Jesus really say that? I vote yellow. Maybe he did. No, he didn't. Who are you? And do you know the verses that they have deemed that Jesus didn't say? Everyone that says he's the only way to heaven everyone that records a miracle that he did, and everyone that's a controversial saying about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. The ones where they're happy versus, okay, he probably said that. I would be very careful because one day you will be knocking, but you can't come in. Because Jesus is going to say, I warned you, don't mess with my word. A couple of verses I'd like to take you there, but we're out of time. Write it down. Proverbs 35 and 6 says, Every word of God is tested. Proverbs 35 and 6. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. And we know all liars have their part in the lake of fire. Here's another one Deuteronomy 4 2. Moses says, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Deuteronomy 4.2. And then Deuteronomy 12.32 says, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to, nor take away from it. Deuteronomy 12.32. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And all God's people said, amen. Let's say it together. Come, Lord Jesus. This is another way of saying Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. And then the final verse of the book of Revelation. So glad it's going to end on grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all or with you all and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, um, as we have wrapped up the book of Revelation, how many of you 
have been here since the very first chapter was taught. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. You guys have gone through the whole book and it's a blessing. 